on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. The Mob Museum has to go on record that Frank Sinatra was not a mobster. From the way he talked and the way he interacted with people, he wanted you to think he was in the mob, at least when it was convenient for him. He there there's times when he was like, "No, I I have no connection to the mob. I don't know what you're talking about." But he is responsible for people thinking he was a mobster. He was more than happy most of the time for people to make that association with him. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 151 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Vegas headliner and America's Got Talent winner, magician Matt Franco. On my last trip to Las Vegas, I went backstage and hung out with Matt pre-show for a conversation where we talked about what got him into magic, the support he's had from his family through his career, his AGT experience, and much more. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 150, my special guest, Matt Franco. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Las Vegas bills itself as the entertainment capital of the world. And it's easy to see why, with big names performing up and down the Vegas Strip on a nightly basis, as it has been for decades. But how did Vegas earn that moniker? And what role did the world of organized crime play in helping the city achieve that reputation? That's what my guest for this episode of the podcast is here to tell us. Making her second appearance on the show is Claire White, Director of Education for the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. Last time Claire was here, we went in-depth talking about Liberace and the impact he had on the Vegas entertainment scene. During the course of that conversation, we briefly touched on the topic of the mob and their place in Las Vegas's entertainment history. I thought it might be fun to have Claire back on the podcast to go into a little more detail on the topic. We discussed the early days of entertainment in Las Vegas and where it all began, how entertainment evolved over the years, the mob's role in building the industry, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Claire White from the Mob Museum. Las Vegas really becomes the entertainment capital of the world largely because of financial capital, um, big paychecks. And uh, that is definitely thanks to organized crime. It's not exclusively because of organized crime by any means, but Las Vegas was willing to pay big bucks for for relatively big names. Um, And that, I think already by the 1950s was sort of, it was a self-made allure. Las Vegas was able to create in the same way that it created all of the other uh, myths about itself of being Sin City and being, you know, the the nation's playground and all of those things. It also (laughs) self-titled itself as the entertainment capital of the world in many ways. Uh, By the mid-1950s, we are seeing that moniker uh, in national publications, but it's one of those things that like tracking down who said it first is, uh, if not impossible, I haven't been able to accomplish it yet. Um, and I think, you know, some of the trends that that emerge that sort of make the entertainment capital of the world ring true for Las Vegas. And we talked about a lot of this with Liberace, but, you know, visitors wanted to see performers that they already knew. um, And the mob was able to provide that a lot of times because these big names who were household names in the 1940s and 50s 
a lot of times had started out as nightclub singers or comedians at speakeasies and illegal clubs in New York and Chicago and New Orleans and LA during prohibition. And, and so mobsters had at least some passing acquaintance with, with uh, huge, huge names by the 1950s, such as, you know, Lena Horne and Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Um, and that, that, that helped. That helped bring them to Las Vegas. Uh, hotel casinos felt immense pressure to book the biggest acts. And that often translated to using personal connections to try to talk big names into coming and living in the desert for, you know, four weeks, five weeks, uh, as, as time went on, sometimes residencies of, you know, four months, six months, nine months. Um, and, and yeah, the money that it truly, the capital is what made us the entertainment capital of the world. Some of the what I just consider, you know, staggering figures. Um, in the early 1950s, in the United States, the average income's about uh, $4,000. And Lena Horne was receiving about $2,000 a week uh, for her performances in Las Vegas in the 50s. The Andrews sisters, uh, they're, you know, as a, as a group, as a unit, were making about $10,000 a week. Uh, Red Skelton uh, was making upwards of $30,000 a week. Wow. And in 55, I, 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 you know, I'll have to talk about Liberace a little, so for, please forgive me. Um, he made $50,000 for opening week at the Riviera in 1955. Um, I, it's staggering. It's remarkable. I mean, people are getting paid the equivalent of, you know, multiple houses. <laughs> Those early days, who were some of the first hotels to bring in entertainment back in the, in the very, very beginning of, of entertainment in Vegas? So Las Vegas... Um, and really the state of Nevada. We legalized gambling in 1931. Um, and in 1931, one of the original hotel casinos, which is actually only open for a couple of months, uh, but it was called the Meadows Club. And it was financed by Rum Running Brothers, Tony Canero and his brothers, Louie and Frank, uh, who'd made money as, as Southern California rum runners. And they... They were sort of the first people to go out of their way to sort of create an L.A. nightclub sort of scene. Um, and so they hire Broadway producer Jack Laughlin to produce their showroom's review. Uh, he brings in not necessarily named entertainers, but he brings in people from L.A. to work in the review. And then he also attracted a number of national touring acts, um, one of the first being the Gum Sisters, uh, who most of us don't know the Gum Sisters today. Uh, uh, but almost everyone knows the littlest gum sister by her later stage name, Judy Garland. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. She was nine when they performed at the Meadows Club. Um, but they, the, the gum sisters did have in the 20s and 30s a following. Um, and then, then um, Judy Garland becomes the, the best known of the, of the three sisters. Other than that, in the, in the 30s, most of the hotels and casinos are downtown and they just don't have the space to host big acts. But that really changes as soon as we start building hotel casinos on the Strip. Um, in 1941, the El Rancho Vegas opens. In 1942, the Hotel Last Frontier, and then the Flamingo in 46. Um, and some of the original performers in those properties include the Will Maston Trio, of which Sammy Davis Jr. was still a member of when they performed in 44. Uh, the uh, burlesque performer, uh, Lily Sincere, Sophie Tucker, comedian Joey Lewis, um, Xavier Cugat, uh, who is a band leader. He performed at the opening of the Flamingo in 46, uh, accompanying Jimmy Durante as well as Rose Marie. In January, just a couple months after the Flamingo opens, um, Lena Horne performs there. So, you know, they're they're already getting big names within the first couple years. Liberace, again, is one of the first performers at the Hotel Last Frontier. And how, I mean, how was entertainment initially received when, when it started in Las Vegas? I mean, was there kind of this attitude of, 
listen, we just want to sit here and gamble. We want to play our slots. We want to play our cards. We don't want to be bothered by the guy over there singing and dancing. Or was it actually a, a positive thing? Did people look at it as a an enhancement to their experience? That's such a great question, especially because at least locally, there is this narrative that until about the 70s or 80s, casinos don't care at all about anything except gambling. Um, and that even even until the the you know early 2000s that gambling is still the primary money maker in Las Vegas and in Nevada so of course all of the other amenities the the performers and the the stores and and the fact that there's you know shopping that you can do in these properties is is tangential that it doesn't matter and from a profit perspective, that is accurate. Until the 90s, we really do not derive a whole lot of profit uh, from, for instance, a live entertainment in Las Vegas. But to say that that means that it's unimportant would be such a, uh, you know, su such a, a misunderstanding. And, and certainly I I, that wasn't what you said, but I, I do think that that's sometimes sort of the narrative that, you know, oh, it just, it wasn't really that important. Early audiences were impressed by the names that graced the stages of early Las Vegas. Um, you know, especially for someone who is coming from uh, from Middle America, who is coming to Las Vegas, and you know, even uh, international tourism to Las Vegas is is a is a modern thing. But we've had Canadians, we've had people from Mexico, we've had people uh, from overseas visit us. For, for as long as we've existed. Uh, the numbers may have, have increased over time, but we've always had people who have come to Las Vegas for whom sort of the, the Western U.S. Uh, <laughs> cultural excess is completely foreign and <laughs> completely exciting. And those crowds were incredibly excited to see someone in the early years like Liberace or Lena Horne or Louis Armstrong, and then in later years, Elvis and the Rat Pack, and then, you know, even further down the road, Tom Jones and Wayne Newton, being able to see those individuals um, at, at, at least in the beginning at, at relatively low ticket prices was a huge deal. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes for some of our more cosmopolitan visitors, people from, you know, say LA or New York, um, it might not have been as impressive, but there, there, is, there is always a need to provide something more than casino gambling. Were there people in the early years who came to Las Vegas and did nothing but gamble? Of course, that's still true today. Yeah. Um, but you know, for every for every man who spends, you know, you know, like eighteen of his twenty four hours at the craps table, uh, his wife has to do something. His girlfriend has to do something. Um, and and I think even even for the most committed gamblers, entertainment was was a nice break. I can't imagine how mind-blowing it would be, as you say, for somebody in the mid-50s from Topeka, Kansas, all of a sudden going to Las Vegas on this big trip. And then, yeah, like you say, being able to sit front row center for Louis Armstrong or Lena Horne or, or, or Liberace or somebody that they've only seen on, on big screen or on, on the little screen in their, in their living room or whatever, the, somebody that they've never seen before. And all of a sudden, wow, this person is, they're right there. They're right in front of me. That's exactly true. And, you know, I think it's, it's so different today. Our, our consumption of entertainment is so incredibly different today. But even for me, I grew up here in Las Vegas and have, as an adult, lived in, in different parts of the country. And, you know, I, I would, would tell people for a while I was living in Massachusetts and I would tell people like, oh yeah, one of my, one of my mom's friends was a entertainment booker at the MGM. So I think I saw Britney Spears like eight times in like a three year period and I didn't pay for it ever. And even if you couldn't care less about Britney Spears, that's still like, oh my gosh, you'd seen Britney Spears for free eight times. How's that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, I, it wasn't, I, it was, it, they were wonderful shows. This is not a critique of Britney Spears, but like I wouldn't have probably gone if I hadn't had the opportunity here in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's let's talk about then where where the mob fits into all this. I mean, obviously, they were for the most part the casino owners. They were running the show. They were running the city at that time. But just how in depth were they with the actual entertainment side of things? Even more involved than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Um, from the beginning, the mob has, uh, a, essentially a, a, a ground floor stake in, in booking, uh, entertainment in casinos. Uh, Major Riddle is one early example. So he himself is not technically a mobster, uh, but he's involved in illegal nightclubs in Indiana and Illinois in the thirties and forties. Uh, he has connections to the Chicago outfit. And, um, in 1956, uh, he purchases, uh, the dunes, uh, using loans from, the Teamster Pension Fund. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you, you can't really get more mob than that without being truly a made man and doing the finger prick and all that. He hadn't done that. But save that part of the of the pomp and circumstance. He's, he's organized crime. Um, <laughs> uh, he brings the first topless review, Minsky's Follies, to the Dunes in 1957. And, you know, showgirls and, and reviews are a little different than, than headliners, which I think is a lot of what we're talking about today. But those shows matter also because, you know, you, you can't see Elvis or Louis Armstrong or Frank Sinatra every night. Um, so if you're in Vegas for a week, you you're probably going to have a few nights where you're not seeing any shows. You're probably going to have one night where you see one of the big headliners. And then you're probably going to fill out one of the other, you know, a couple other nights with with the smaller lounge acts or a showgirl review or something like that. Um, and, you know, the mob just becomes more and more entrenched in the entertainment side of things. Uh, first, as like actual entertainment bookers, uh, Johnny Roselli, who I have a feeling we'll talk quite a lot about in a moment. Um, he was involved with uh, entertainment booking across Las Vegas uh, for a number of years. And as time goes by, the role of the entertainment booker, the, that job, like literally the job of like director of entertainment or director of booking or director of, you know, um, food, beverage and amenities, things like that. Uh, that job became a really clever way to keep mobsters with criminal records on the casino floor without them having to qualify for an individual gaming license. So probably the my favorite example, and one of the best examples of that is Frank Lefty Rosenthal, um, who was, he's the, um, he's the Robert De Niro character in Casino for, for those who know mob movies better than mob history. Um, <laughs> Rosenthal was the person in charge of the skim for the Chicago outfit at the Stardust, the Hacienda, the Marina, and the Fremont. Um, he also was a sports gaming pioneer. Uh, the Stardust Sportsbook was 100% thanks to Rosenthal. But at no point when he was at the Stardust was his title pit boss. He wasn't ever director of gaming. You didn't know he had anything to do with the sportsbook. He was... For most of his time, um, and I'm not certain his, his exact official title, uh, but he was the director of entertainment. Uh, he booked, he booked in, in air quotes, entertainment for the Stardust um, and the other properties uh, managed by the Chicago Outfit. Um, he, he actually, I mean, his, his whole persona in Las Vegas was kind of like this of, of the entertainment guy. He was out at nightclubs all the time. He had a public access television show in which he interviewed performers and casino executives and showgirls. Um, and, you know, he did this because they needed him on site but he would have never qualified for um, his own personal gaming license. Um, to, to use another great example, in the 1970s, from 77 to 79, the executive producer of the Foley's Berger Showgirl Review at the Tropicana was a Kansas City mobster named Joe Augusto. 
also uh, the overseer of the skim just at the trop instead of <laughs> instead of the suite of Rosenthal's properties. And, you know, Augusto had no dance experience. He didn't have any um, executive production experience with Broadway shows or anything like that. He was there because that was the job they could put him in that would would place him where he needed to be without needing a gaming license. Now, I seem to recall, maybe it was Augusto or maybe it was it was Rosenthal. I can't remember which one, but one of them spent a lot of time going to the showgirl show. It, it must have been Augusto and would sit there and then would go backstage and critique the show afterwards to the dancers and the performers. And like you say, no experience, no entertainment experience at all, but would go to every show and would give notes. And, and I mean, bless their hearts for taking their entertainment job as seriously as they did. <laughs> uh, yes. So that is definitely a gusto. Uh, that, that I, that's not to say that none of these other guys also <laughs> took that, <laughs> that clear of a role, but I, but I imagine the story you've heard is Augusto because that's, that's a pretty common, um, anecdote attributed to him. You know, I think it was, it was a couple things. It was, first of all, that running the skim is important and does take work and does take intelligence, but it's not happening every day. I mean, if you oversee the skim, all you have to do is a couple days a week, check the count room a couple days a week, plan routes for, you know, money traveling in and out of the property. It's not a, it's not a 40 hour a week job per se. Um, and so he did, he had the time. Um, and you know, I, I don't, think that that would be that terrible of a job for a man who's spent his life working in the company of a lot of rough other men. I think he was more than happy to spend his time with with some very talented, uh, far more refined ladies. And, you know, he um, I think he had genuine, sincere interest in the success of the show, as well as probably inappropriate interest in <laughs> in some of the beautiful individuals who worked for him i'm sure <laughs> i wanted to talk about some of the famous names and maybe some names that people know of and, and get a little bit into their stories and their involvement in in organized crime and in entertainment and you mentioned johnny rosselli so i think that's probably a, a good place to start can you give me a little bit of the background on johnny rosselli and kind of his beginnings with the mob Yes. So uh, Johnny Roselli got his start in crime very early. Um, born in Italy, family immigrated to Boston. Um, he's just a teenager when he's first arrested in Boston. Moves kind of Chicago, New York, um, changes his name a couple times. Actually, Roselli is not his, his uh, birth last name. And one of the things, a fun anecdote that has nothing to do with Las Vegas history and only to do with Roselli, um, he himself is never really certain how to spell Roselli. And so you get like double S's, sometimes single S's, sometimes usually double L, but not always double L. Part of it is the fact that Italian uh, spelling is it, it like it's not always clear whether you should be using double <laughs> letters or not. Um, it's also just that you know clearly I this this is a guy for whom uh, formal schooling was not a big part of his life, and so I just think like how many letters was in Roselli was not that important <laughs> to him. Um, difficult though for us because like that's one of those things that then at the mob museum we're forced to make a decision like how are we gonna spell johnny <laughs> roselli's name because he clearly didn't know um but you know i digress he moves to la in 1924 um and by the 1930s he is deeply connected to the la crime family as well as um the chicago outfit he meets al capone in the late 20s um and sort of becomes uh you know he's he's the guy who tells the outfit what LA is doing and he tells LA what the outfit is doing and and he he's in a way like a double operative but he's also like all the mob families know this is happening like this isn't he's not doing this secretively every mob family has someone who they 
put in charge of looking at all the other mob families. Um, he gets involved in labor racketeering and extortion in, in Hollywood, um, as well as gambling rackets. Uh, but he also works as like a legitimate um, movie producer. Legitimate is, is yeah, maybe a too strong a word. Yes, <laughs> legitimate yeah. Legitimate in air quotes. Let's use our air quotes for, <laughs> for legitimate. But, you know, he's working for actual companies. He's, he's operating sort of at the surface level of real legitimate Hollywood operations. Um, in the mid-1950s, he shifts his focus to Las Vegas. Um, this is primarily because of his friendship with Sam Giancana, who uh, we'll probably also keep talking about because Sam Giancana's other good pal is Frank Sinatra, and you can't talk Las Vegas Entertainment uh, without Sinatra and Giancana. Um, but uh, Sam Giancana becomes the boss of the Chicago outfit, and he's ready to change out their sort of primary overseer of the skim, who before that had been this guy named uh, Johnny Marshall or, or Marshall Caifano. Um, Roselli winds up being connected to a number of properties through his um, role with the Chicago outfit. Um, he owns the parking and, and gift shop uh, at the Tropicana. He books entertainment for the Trop and then sort of uh, translates that into a full-scale entertainment booking company in Las Vegas. Uh, he... He helps arrange a number of the Teamster Casino loans, of which I honestly I could have taken better notes, I guess, but I couldn't even tell you which ones because they all had them, and and it's just so it's so interconnected, and and um, just the the 1950s and 60s are very hard. <laughs> I was going to say I feel like it would actually be easier to make a list of casinos that didn't receive. Uh, alone from the Teamsters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And even those are so contested. I mean, even, you know, your other mob museum guest, Jeff Schumacher, who is an incredible resource and knows even more about the mob in Las Vegas than I do. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I don't know if this is too much information that he would not want me to share, but just a few weeks ago, he and I were discussing the debates about whether the Sahara was mob funded and and if it wasn't was there still mob connections i mean you know some of these properties it's just it's impossible to definitively say yes they never benefited from mob finance um it's just impossible yeah but uh, back to roselli i keep i keep making these asides with roselli uh, which it actually as an aside is a good sort of uh, parallel to his life because he was involved just in so much in so many places. Um, he orchestrated the takeover of the Stardust uh, project right before it opens. Um, and so, you know, essentially paves the way for people like Rosenthal in later years. And he, like, he had shares in the ice machine business in Las Vegas, like everything. He had so many little little hands and little pots all across the city. <laughs> now things did not end all that well for Johnny Rosselli as, as they often do not for people who live this life. That is correct. Um, Johnny Roselli did end his life um, in a barrel in uh, the waterways outside of, of Miami, his home in Miami. Um, Roselli, Roselli, outside of Las Vegas is interesting because he, he was, he was connected to organized crime throughout his life in LA, in Chicago, um, had ties to Miami, um, had ties to the federal government was a part of potential plots to assassinate Fidel Castro after, uh, Castro among other things, pushed mobsters out of their casinos. Um, certainly they're, you know, the government had different reasons for wanting Castro assassinated, but the mob was all too happy to assist if it meant getting their casinos back. From what I read on Rosselli, it sounded like, as you say, like he just had, he had fingers and pies all over the place and was involved in so many things. And the, the entertainment booking side of things was really kind of interesting because he did have some famous quote unquote clients that he was involved with. <laughs> yes. 
Um, he did. Yeah, he definitely did. You know, uh, Roselli was uh, responsible for booking Frank Sinatra um, in the role of From Here to Eternity. Um, and, you know, the thing is, and, and not to undermine the intention of your question, you could not be in Hollywood or in the music industry in the 50s and 60s without coming in contact with bookers that had mob ties. Um, it's just a reality. And so I'm always very, I'm always very hesitant to say, you know, oh, well, this guy was booked by this guy. So oh, there you go. Um, Sinatra's a little different, but you know, he did. Roselli was, was instrumental in, in working with a number of actresses, uh, as well as a number of, uh, actors and actresses, as well as a number of musicians across the, across the entertainment industry. After the break, Claire and I talk about some of the prominent Vegas performers with alleged mob ties, including one that might surprise you. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. Let's talk about Frank Sinatra because I think I think Frank Sinatra's story is probably maybe the best known mob tie entertainment industry Las Vegas story. Can you give me a little bit of history about Frank Sinatra in Las Vegas and how he sort of found his way to Vegas? So First of all, before I answer your question, the Mob Museum has to go on record that Frank Sinatra was not a mobster. Um, from the way he talked and the way he interacted with people, he wanted you to think he was in the mob, at least when it was convenient for him. He, there, there was times when he was like, no, I, I have no connection to the mob. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, he, he he is responsible for people thinking he was a mobster. He was more than happy most of the time for people to make that association with him. Um, here in Las Vegas, his story has both intersections with the mob as well as just sort of, you know, yeah, they're in the same city, but he would have probably been here no matter what. Um, his first Las Vegas gig is at the Desert Inn in 1951. Um, and he is performing in 1951, not at the height of his career. Um, this is sort of in that window of time where he'd been a star, um, but he and Nancy are actually in Nevada establishing residency so they can get one of those nice uh, Nevada six-week quickie divorces. <laughs> okay. He's not at the top of his game. Um, and he actually doesn't make a big splash. If you look at reviews of his first gigs in 1951, um, they're pretty rough. I, they essentially say like, I am, I am paraphrasing. I am deeply, deeply paraphrasing, but they essentially say, you know, it's clear this guy is here to, uh, you know, wait out his failing marriage. Things are not great. He's not as handsome as he was just a couple of years ago. And he's, he's washed up. We don't even know if he'll have another hit. Um, clearly that's wrong. I mean, obviously those reviews are wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that those are accurate reviews, but I, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a strong <laughs> first showing. Um, he comes back in 54 three and plays at the Copa room at the Sands. And uh, to be cliche, the rest is history. Um, he finds his niche. I, even though it's only two years later, he's, he's recovered from his divorce. He's recovered from some of his career issues that he had in the late forties and early fifties. And um, by 1960, he's got the rest of the Rat Pack there uh, with him at his shows. So Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Joey Bishop and Peter Lawford. And uh, he performs there until 67 um, when he moves to the Caesars Palace. Um, by 67, Howard Hughes owns the Sands. And Howard Hughes wasn't as willing to extend credit lines in the casino as the previous owners of the Sands had been. Um, 
Sinatra leaves the sands primarily due to what is kind of an infamous meltdown. He flips out on the casino floor when he's not allowed to continue playing um, and drives a golf court cart through one of the windows at the oh, sands. Geez. And, you know, for someone like Howard Hughes, who most definitely suffered from OCD and, and a lot of other um a lot of things that just made made him very intractable. Um, this was this was the last straw. Like he didn't he already wasn't really that into this guy who clearly had a lot of buddies who were mobsters and also uh, spent more money than he than he had in the casino. And now on top of it, he's bursting through windows. Like this is not a this is not Hughes approved kind of behavior. <laughs> And I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned about Howard Hughes taking over in there just as a as a bit of an aside there, because Hughes was sort of famously known for the guy that being the guy, I should say, that kind of drove the mob out of Vegas to a certain degree. Yes. Um, you know, and I will say that uh, I I will always defer to Jeff Schumacher when it comes to Howard Hughes, because he literally wrote the book. Um, but yes, Howard Hughes most certainly is a big part of pushing the mob out of Las Vegas, uh, because his early forays into corporate ownership on the casino paves the way in 69 for Nevada to pass the, um, corporate gaming act, which no longer requires every shareholder of a publicly traded company to qualify for a gaming license in order for that company to own a casino. Um, it also just, it literally legitimizes it. People are like, Oh, Hey, Howard Hughes owns a casino. I guess it's not that bad. Like that's, that's a good person to to follow in the footsteps of. Um, but that said, you know, Hughes, Hughes purchases casinos, his casino purchase sprees in 67. Um, the mob still runs Las Vegas through the 80s. So does he start pushing them out? Yes. Um, does he operate in a vacuum where he doesn't have to deal with mobsters? Not at all. Um, in fact, his right-hand man, Bob Mayhew, um, has a ha has a connection to Johnny Roselli. Bob Mayhew was also involved in some of those Fidel Castro assassination plots, had known Johnny Roselli and um, Sam Giancana for years, and they're all sort of swimming in the same pond. Um, that's That's not too... Uh, dismiss the traditional narrative that Hughes pushes the mob out, but it is to provide, I think, a little bit of additional context that people sometimes forget. Back to old blue eyes here. Where where did his mob ties begin? What were sort of the origins of his connections? Frank Sinatra's parents actually owned a bar during Prohibition uh, that purchased alcohol from mobsters, including Waxy Gordon. So if you want to really go far back, I guess you could actually make the claim that he had some connection to mobsters when he was like, you know, school aged. <laughs> um, and what I think some people either don't know or, or forget is that uh, Sinatra was already performing in clubs as a teenager. Um, he, he started his career very young. And so many of those early clubs that he performed in were owned or in some way connected to organized crime. So even if he himself uh, was never a mobster and wasn't, you know, breaking the law, um, regularly as a part of his day-to-day -day life, he was at least acquainted, if not even friendly, with a number of, of mobsters pretty early. By the 1940s, um, he is friendly, if not outright friends, with Charles Lucky Luciano, uh, Joe and Rocco Fischetti, um, and then Sam Giancana, uh, who, longtime Chicago mobster, one-time boss of the Chicago outfit, um, they are they are close close personal friends are for the majority of of uh, the time that they are best known and if anything that relationship is what leads Sinatra to a little bit of hot water because of his supposed ties to the mob. Did any of the other Rad Pack members have 
the same level of ties that Frank did? I mean, you mentioned some of the names in there, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Joey Bishop, those guys. Did they did they have that same level of ties or were they simply just, I don't want to say guilty by association, but you know what I mean? So it is definitely a, a spectrum um, and Sinatra is definitely the guy who you can point to <laughs> having the most mob ties. But in the same way that Sinatra, you know, um, knows all these people because of the line of work that he does and his uh, um, his ethnic background and his entertainment background. For instance, Dean Martin, you can you can make those same connections. Um, Dean Martin actually uh, dealt, I believe it was blackjack at an illegal uh, casino when he was still like a teenager. Um, and then you know the when he was performing as martin and and lewis they were same as sinatra they were performing in mob owned clubs um i think the major difference is that because martin and and this is definitely this is my opinion um but because martin really did want to double down so much on like being that italian american guy he i think um didn't he wanted to distance himself from organized crime and the mob for the same reasons that Sinatra wanted to be synonymous with it. Like Sinatra was trying to portray himself as a very specific type of guy. And Dean Martin was trying to portray himself as this very specific kind of all American, but also Italian American guy. Like he, he wanted you to think of like, Oh, I'm this, you know, I'm, I'm the, the Italian next door kind of Italian, whereas Sinatra's <laughs> like, no, I'm the Italian that you're not so sure about. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr., very similar to Frank Sinatra, um, and also Dean Martin, you know, at some points in time, um, had shares in Las Vegas casinos, had shares in, um, you know, specific stakes or showrooms. Um, but again, like, n nothing to the extent of Sinatra. Um, I think the the most you could say about Peter Lawford um, is that he was married to uh, <laughs> one of the Kennedy daughters. Uh, and, you know, everyone thinks that the Kennedys have some mob connection. But um, in as much as, as the Mob Museum is of the firm opinion that the Kennedys did not have the mob association <laughs> that people think they did, uh, you also, by extension, cannot say that Peter Lawford did. Um, and Joey Bishop, I'm going to be super honest, even in prepping for this interview, I went back and like reminded myself of what Joey Bishop did when he wasn't on stage with the Rat Pack. I, not much other than have not a great reputation. Um, he didn't have a great reputation for getting along with others. Um, which in a way is a very mob behavior, but in another way, you're not going to, no mobster is going to get in bed with you if you can't get along with anyone there. They don't need that on their books. <laughs> I have, I have a couple of little points I want to hit on Frank Sinatra and I want to do kind of a fact or fiction. And you, you kind of hit on this first one. Frank would often brag about his mob ties and he'd use them to threaten people. Yes, he did. He definitely used them to threaten people. Um, and Mob history is so tricky because it's so, even if you are doing the most immaculate research, separating fact from fiction is so difficult. Um, but what I can say is that Frank Sinatra definitely threatened that he could have people taken out because of his mob connections. And uh, to our knowledge, that never happened. <laughs> Did he eventually end up fearing for his safety because of these connections? Did this, this became a problem for him, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, so first of all, he definitely did. Um, as, as, as we move into the 1960s and even into the 1970s, um, Sinatra's bragging of all kinds has really caught up with him. Um, and in connection to the mob, uh, there are a number of times that he, uh, starts being more active about, uh, you know, having bodyguards and having other protection because of his fears that he might uh, be the victim of a hit. Uh, the other thing is it does start to cut into his uh, financial viability. 
Um, it's all well and good to brag about your mob ties until you want to be the on the books owner of hotels. Um, so he purchases a share in the County Lodge in Lake Tahoe, and then he winds up losing his gambling license in 63 because he lets his friend Giancana hang out at the County Lodge, even though Giancana is in the Nevada Black Book and is barred from casinos. Um, and so not only does he uh, voluntarily surrender his gambling license, which you know leads to him not being able to own the Calneva, he also loses his 9% share in the Sands. Um, and he tries, he tries a number of times uh, over the next two decades to re-engage with casino ownership in Las Vegas. And over and over again, he keeps getting called to appear in front of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. Um, he even appeared in front of the of a joint uh, Senate House Committee on Organized Crime. He and Sammy Davis Jr. Um, related to, you know, truly related to all of the bragging that he did about his connections to these people. And did he, th there's some stories floating around that I'd read that he offered to become a CIA informant. Did he offer to flip? So um, I have to say I'm not 100% certain on that. Um, it's not something that we've uh, extensively covered. We actually don't cover it at the museum currently. There, there's nowhere in our exhibits where we talk about that. I have also heard that. Um, I am not, I'm not able to say for sure whether that happened, but I can definitely confirm that I have also heard that. Yeah, the story that I had read was that he offered and the CIA was kind of like, no, we good. We have enough people. We we don't we don't need your help, Frank, but thanks. <laughs> yes, I you know, both the CIA and the FBI, um I've heard that about Sinatra and I've I've over the years heard it about other people. Um I think the CIA in particular, you know, they're they don't cut as many deals as as at least I you know, I don't know internationally what people assume or don't assume about the CIA, but I think in the United States, we think the CIA is like cutting backroom deals all the time. I think that the CIA is more selective than we dream that they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about one of the not so common potential mob ties or alleged mob ties. And this is a story that, that I knew nothing about until I listened to the second season of the mobbed up podcast, which by the way, if people haven't listened to it is, is an absolutely outstanding podcast to check out. Um, Wayne Newton, Mr. Las Vegas, who started as a, a, a teen pop idol, squeaky clean, fresh faced kid came up through the world of entertainment. There was at one time, and maybe it's still floating around to this day, not current, but obvious in the past, that he had mob connections. Can you tell us a little bit about those alleged mob connections? Wayne Newton, uh, his his alleged mob connections all come about because of his ownership or partial ownership in the Aladdin. Um, and that's because when he purchases the Aladdin, there is uh, the reason he is able to purchase shares in the Aladdin is because the Nevada Gaming Control Board forced the previous owners to sell the Aladdin because of their mob ties. Um, and so as a part of this, you know, tricky changeover of ownership, um, the I think the local as well as the national media start looking into it. Um, and specifically national NBC uh, news reporters connect Newton uh, with a guy named uh, Guido Pinozzi, who uh, was a, a Gambino crime family member in New York. And Newton does in fact know him um, and at one point even had reached out to him um, to help him because there were some death threats uh, on his daughter's life, his very young daughter's life at the time. But Newton, you know, what's crazy is Newton does have an incredibly squeaky clean image before this in 1980. Um, and retains his squeaky clean image. And I think the reason he retains it even after these allegations are explicitly because the 
allegations, while some of them are, are accurate, it, like I said, I mean, he did know this mobster. He did certainly know other mobsters in Las Vegas. He performed at the Fremont, which was mob-owned. He performed at a number of mob-owned properties. Um, but there's only so much guilty by association that can happen in Las Vegas. If every single person who worked in a, a Las Vegas uh, casino <laughs> in the 1960s or 70s uh, knew a mobster, which they did, was every single one of them connected to the mob? No, no, they were not. Um, and and I think Newton definitely falls into that category um, that, you know, there, there just wasn't, there wasn't a ton of stock in the rumors that he was a mob frontman. There were fears and, and I think legitimate fears that whoever was going to purchase the Aladdin might be a front man um, because the strip's not fully cleaned up when he's purchasing the Aladdin in 1980. So that is a, a really fair concern that why is this entertainer who everyone knows who has never expressed interest in owning casinos suddenly trying to purchase the Aladdin? He has to be a front for someone. Um, that's a legitimate concern. It doesn't hold up when you start digging into his life and his story and, and why he decides to purchase uh, a part of the Aladdin. And it didn't hold up for NBC News either, because this story, it, it from the podcast, from the Mobbed Up podcast, and from the, the research that I did into it, it got quite ugly. I mean, it was NBC meeting Wayne at his private jet and sticking microphones and cameras in his face and trying to ambush him into saying whatever. And of course, he went on the offensive with NBC News in a big way on this. Yes, he did. Um, he was he was not taking this. And I think, you know, there's a couple reasons for that. As much as Wayne Newton, in a lot of ways, seems like a very, uh, you know, sort of neutral presence. I, he was a he was a tough guy. Like he was not taking any of this. Um, and I think you have to have a tough skin if you start performing when you're 15, 16 years old, as as Newton had. Um, and yeah, NBC News, I mean, it's remarkable, and I think it's especially remarkable because this it falls into that category of if you watch uh, if you watch the the NBC News coverage of them sort of ambushing him and asking him these questions. Sadly, in 2023, it doesn't look so terrible. Um, but in 1980, it was aggressive. It was well beyond what most people expected a, a established media uh, entity like NBC to do to someone who had been, you know, a, a well-known uh, presence in American media, again, since he was 15 or 16 years old. No one wanted to see that. He's Mr. Las Vegas. He's Mr. Donka Shane. Like, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't do that to this guy. Um, but he did. He did go on the offensive. Um, he sued for libel. And I don't want to go too far into it, only because I want to encourage your listeners to also listen to Mobbed Up if they have not. And also, if they've already listened to Mobbed Up, it's well summarized and you don't need me to do it for you. Um, but it is, it's definitely a, it's an interesting story and I'm glad you brought it up. That whole Aladdin Wayne Newton situation and the Johnny Carson getting involved and all of that. It was so bizarre and so weird. So yeah, as, as an aside, if you haven't listened to the season two of mobbed up yet, go and listen to it because it was, it was an outstanding story and a very, very interesting story <laughs> to say the least. Um, there were several other prominent, entertainers in las vegas and as you mentioned i mean it's it's pretty easy to maybe look at them and go wow hey, there's a little connection there i mean let's 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 hit it big right off the start here the king of rock and roll elvis presley i mean elvis spent a very long time in las vegas was there ever any rumored connection between the king and the family you know, no, no real Elvis mob connections that stick. Um, although I always like to talk about it only because of that. I, I do like to bring up that, you know, you really, you can't, you can't connect Elvis and the mob. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, one thing that can be easy to overlook, um, Elvis's most success in Las Vegas was at the Hilton. Um, and 
the Hilton's owned by the Hilton. The Hilton is not mob run. Um, and so the fact that Elvis is is separate from the strip casinos that are still at that point in time in the 70s so mob uh, influenced, I think did in a lot of ways in uh, insulate him from some of those mob theories and mob connections. Um, and, you know, I think what's, what is remarkable is that as much as I tend to focus more on Liberace and the Rat Pack only because of the work that I do and the work that I've done in the past, you know, Elvis's legacy is so strong, I think, because of how, um, how hard when he was here in Las Vegas, he was working to, to, to seem like his old self and to seem like just still a good all American guy. And as much as he was struggling personally while he was performing, um, you know, he wanted to provide that, uh, he wanted to provide that nostalgia for people of their youth, of his own youth. Um, and I think he, that's one of the reasons his legacy lives on a little more than some of the other performers. Um, although I will say, my goodness, when when I was still in school, when I was still in, in high school and even in college, um, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing Elvis impersonators. I literally, I worked at an Elvis-themed wedding chapel when I was in college. <laughs> of course. Um, it's Las Vegas. Of course you exactly. did. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the, all the normal college jobs, you know, Elvis-themed wedding chapel, Liberace Museum, the convention center. Isn't that what everyone does for work in college? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but, but Elvis, you know, he, he He's not as big of a presence anymore. I, I, I work downtown. I work very close to Fremont Street. And I can sometimes go weeks without seeing Elvis impersonators. Uh, so something, <laughs> something that as a person who is a, is a historian of the relatively recent past in Las Vegas, it's something that I'm always very sensitive of, of like, when do we stop thinking of of Las Vegas in connection to Elvis. When do we stop thinking about it in connection to Liberace or the Rat Pack or Showgirls? Because um, obviously none of those people are performing either. We don't have a single traditional Showgirl review left on the strip. Hmm. Um, when, when do we stop thinking of Las Vegas entertainment in the context of them and start thinking of it, you know, in in the context of whoever it is, Wayne Newton or, or Barry Manilow or Lady Gaga or Britney Spears or Elton John, you know? It's very odd. It's very odd to think about. It's weird. Yeah. As, as you say, I mean, to not see an Elvis impersonator, it's that's just some about that doesn't sit right with me. It's wrong. It's terrible. Um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make it through this podcast without telling people that because I, I don't want the young people of Las Vegas to miss out on that. <laughs> that used to be a legitimate, you know, I, I mean, I, I joke in a way, but that being an impersonator used to be like a legitimate career path in Las Vegas. Like you really could think I'm going to be an Elvis impersonator. I'm going to be a Barry Manilow impersonator. I'm going to be a Rat Pack impersonator. It's harder to get that kind of work these days. Those jobs are just few and far between. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, were there any other names that were sort of synonymous with entertainment and, and, and organized crime in Las Vegas? I mean, we've, we've hit on so many, but were there any other big ones that, that really kind of stand out? So the one name, and we've, we've already talked about him, um, but I do want to talk about him a little more, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, and it's because of the intersectional role that he played in being an entertainer, also being a civil rights activist, and also operating within these mob-owned hotels and casinos here in Las Vegas. Um, so in the 1950s in Las Vegas, our hotel casinos are segregated. Uh, black people cannot stay as guests, cannot participate in gambling, cannot see shows, cannot go to restaurants, cannot play on the golf course in any of our hotel casinos. Um, and that is the case until 1960. The one outlier is what do hotel casinos do with the dozens of 
big name, well-known, often wealthy, sometimes intermarried black performers who grace their showrooms. Um, and Sammy Davis Jr. is is not the only one, um, but I think because of his role in the Rat Pack, he's kind of one of the guys we most look to when we look at, at civil rights in Las Vegas. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra, as well as the Rat Pack sort of as an entity, um, make it so that when they sign their contracts at the Sands, that Sammy Davis Jr. is given equal accommodations um, to the rest of the Rat Pack. And this was unique because until then, Sammy Davis Jr., when he would perform here with the Will Maston Trio as of as a solo artist before the Rat Pack, he would have to go all the way to West Las Vegas, the the um, segregated part of town, and stay at a guest house, uh, stay at the Harrison Boarding House, which also housed Nat King Cole when he would perform here. Um, a number of entertainers stayed at, at the Harrison Boarding House and other West Side properties. And while Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra are not the reason that properties desegregate, aggregate, um, their, their negotiations with the Sands definitely draws a lot of attention to the issue in Las Vegas. Um, in 1954, Ebony Magazine actually features a story about segregation in Las Vegas uh, entitled Negroes Can't Win in Las Vegas. Uh, they refer to Las Vegas as the Mississippi of the West um, and talk very candidly about Las Vegas Jim Crow laws. And, you know, this is this is something that shapes Las Vegas essentially for the next decade. And it's interesting because um, the mob has a very complicated connection to civil rights, both when you're looking at race as well as it, when you're looking at um, LGBTQ, because the mob from prohibition on operated a lot of integrated hotels, a lot of integrated showrooms, a lot of integrated uh, speakeasies and casinos. Um, they were not necessarily of the mindset that segregation ruled. But in Las Vegas, they knew that they would have visitors from around the United States, many of whom would be familiar with Jim Crow laws. And so they operate a, a a strip full of segregated casinos, um, which is often surprising when you look at the fact that they have so many other integrated properties around the United States. I've spoken with um, uh, Clay T. White from UNLV on this podcast, and it's it's a really fascinating history. And I would imagine as well that some of that involvement of Sammy Davis Jr. probably got him in trouble with um, the FBI, because I know the FBI kept files on a lot of people that had a lot of of stuff that had any kind of involvement with anything that the FBI was kind of like, eh, this is a little we're just going to keep an eye on these folks. Yes. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. was um, involved in a in a in, I think, two rounds of of passive FBI investigation related to his civil rights activity, um, which to that point in the context of, of the mob and entertainment, you know, if the FBI didn't catch a lot of Sammy Davis Jr. mob connections, I feel confident that there aren't a ton of, of solid Sammy Davis Jr. mob connections. Um, but, you know, I think it is. I think. um it's really easy, black or white, it's really easy to look at Las Vegas entertainers and see them on on the stage and not think about how integral they were to changing, and I don't just mean civil rights policy, I mean changing economic policy, changing uh, procedural policy, changing contract policies in Las Vegas. And you see that with Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra related to the civil rights movement. You see it with... Um, uh, you know, Liberace has has things that he pushes the needle on. Um, there are a number of people. And I think Sammy Davis Jr., another thing that I always like to point out. So um, he discovers Lola Falana. Um, he gave her her first, like, big role on a Broadway musical. Um, and by the 1960s, she's a regular performer on the Joey Bishop's show. So even though she herself is not a Rat Packer, um, she's this sort of, like, one of the dozens of tangential men and women who you can connect to the Rat Pack through um, six degrees of, I don't know, we'll do Joey Bishop instead of Kevin Bacon. Um, <laughs> and in the... 
1970s, she starts performing at the Sands and then the Aladdin. Um, and she was the highest paid female performer in Las Vegas at the time, made $100,000 a week to perform for 20 weeks in the 1970s, um, which is, you know, less than Liberace and Elvis, but to be clear, not a ton less. I mean, they're making about 150k at the same time she's making a hundred um and you know this this is kind of this this is the juice like sammy davis jr doesn't need to be a mobster to start juicing entertainers into the las vegas system <laughs> <laughs> this is it it's fascinating going deep into this kind of stuff and learning about this stuff i i love it if anybody wants to go further themselves and learn a little bit more about the whole world of entertainment and the mob are there any resources that you recommend any good books or any good documentaries or anything that you recommend on this yes um so larry Gregg's bright light city um is an incredible book about las vegas and sort of its uh its self-invention in popular culture um, it's not just about entertainment history, but there's a huge segment of it that is about entertainment history. Um, and I, I know people nowadays usually would refer to prefer to listen or watch things, but I truly there's not a better or overall resource um, than that book. Um, and and uh, Dr. Greg is a is a great resource in Las Vegas history um, in general. So I always like to give a shout out to him because we we rely on on his expertise a lot here at the Mob Museum. Excellent, Claire. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I always love uh, chatting with you guys at the Mob Museum because I always feel like I learn a lot and I love sharing that with my listeners. So thank you so much for uh, for jumping on. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great to chat again. And we we at the Mob Museum love sharing what we know and, and just hope we can welcome as many of your listeners to our museum as possible at some point. If they if they want to come, we'd love to welcome them. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Claire. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.